Hello, and welcome to a very, very, very special episode of the American Filmmaker Podcast. We are going to start doing improvisational reviews on stuff that happens, because it's hard to understand what's really going on behind the scenes. What I'm going to talk about today is the Alec Baldwin shooting, and this relates to so many things, and so we're going to go to many places when we talk about this, but the basis of this is the film he was working on was a $7 million film that was supposed to be shot in 21 days. As a filmmaker, my first feature film was a Global One SAG agreement. And we shot about 21, 23, it was over 21 days, I think 23 or 25 days, uh, for, you know, around $150,000 when everything was said and done. And so, first of all, when you're a filmmaker in the industry, everybody always makes fun of L.A., and the reason why everybody makes fun of L.A., and it's specifically the Chicago team, because the Chicago crews are so good, meaning they know what to do, they know how to do their job, they know how to do their jobs absent of politics. And when the L.A. crews come in, you know, it's like you got to put Band-Aids on them, you got to wear the soft gloves, and really, they need four to five times as much resources as a Chicago crew to make a movie. So that's the first thing, is they were struggling, and from every story you read, there is a protocol on a film set, and there's so many different protocols, and the reason why it's organized that way is because you're basically setting up a village to make a movie. And in this case, you have a $7 million film whose crew was leaving them, the camera people left, and so it was only the cinematographer so really, if you have to diagnose this situation as someone who makes films, as someone who has looked at budgets, probably of that $7 million, $4 million went above the line, maybe $3 million. And so that's where their problems started, because they couldn't pay their crew to actually finish the movie. And so crew starts to walk, crew starts to get disgruntled. And what's even worse is New Mexico is a state that has pretty big tax breaks for movies. I'm not quite sure what the incentive is, but they were definitely getting a percentage of the overall budget that they were spending back for that $7 million movie. So if it was a 10% incentive, they would get $700,000. If it's a 20% incentive, they would get $1.4 million back of that budget and so forth. And so I'm not sure what their tax credit was. So that's a little bit odd. And then, you know, when the crew starts to walk, you know you're in a bad position. As a director, you always try to manage what is always well known. It's called the crew mutiny. Um, it's a famous thing that directors have had to deal with since the beginning of time. Um, I first heard about crew mutinies in the book by Andrei Tarkovsky. Um, I forget what it was. Oh, Sculpting in Time. He's a Russian filmmaker from the 70s and maybe even 60s and, and 70s. But he talked about how to direct a movie and things to look for. And so the crew mutiny is always there. 
So you're always trying to make sure it doesn't happen because in a way, the crew is the most important part of a film set to a realist, to people from LA, to people from New York, to people who the cult of celebrity is huge. They don't really respect the crew. They respect the above the line people. And then they're just nice to everybody else because they look at everybody else as the workers. And I think that's extremely problematic. As a director, I want to talk to my sound man. I want my sound man or woman, my sound human, the sound recordist to have a relationship with me because they might have a creative input to the auditory landscape of the film that they can gather and they can basically start to gather raw sounds and assets. So I'd, I'd never look at anyone like that on my crew. But for the most part, you know, when you step up to a certain level, there's that attitude, the workers and everybody else above. And the producers are above the line. I believe Alec Baldwin was a producer on this movie. And, you know, in my mind, if you're going to take a producer credit, and this is for all producers out there, as much as the director is responsible to help get the pages, you're responsible for the movie. And so whatever happens on that set, you're going to have to file insurance reports. You're going to have to write contracts. You're going to have to sometimes negotiate contracts. So anything that happens on that film set, you are responsible for. And that's why I really think Alec Baldwin should go to jail. And so should the producers. So that's where all this is really going. And really, this story is going to involve Jeffrey Epstein too. So all of the links will be in the show notes so that we can slowly build this evidence so that Alec Baldwin can take responsibility for shooting a woman killing a woman and he needs to be convicted and he needs to go to jail you know because this isn't his first rodeo this isn't this isn't his you know only crime that he's committed in his career okay this is just the one that he's getting caught for and so when you look at every story in the newspaper, and we're going to start with this ABC story. It's from December 2nd, 2021, and it was written by Lucien Brueggemann, Brueggemann. And I'm just going to read some stuff. You know, I'm going to read over the kind of hype of the intro to the article. And then I'm going to, you know, hours after... A moment of reflection where Baldwin is, oh, he's falling in love with cinema, which is really kind of, you know, some little hype that the journalist made up. Uh, Baldwin was holding an antique Colt 45 revolver during a marking rehearsal for the film when the prop gun discharged a live bullet, killing cinematographer Hallian Hutchins and wounding director Joel Souza. Someone put a live bullet in the gun, a bullet that wasn't even supposed to be on the property, Baldwin said. Which, you know, we've already heard other reports from the crew that says they were running the set like a student film. 
I mean, that's essentially what everybody was saying and that the crew and other people had live rounds on the set because it was an old Western town and they would basically go for target practice. So this should have been Baldwin's first, I don't know, idea that he could be getting set up or that they're, you know, maintaining order on his film set that he's a producer on, um, or maintaining order on the set that he knows the producers is probably important because if you don't maintain that order, then there are live rounds on the set. And that was from an earlier story when the story just broke. So, okay. Now Baldwin said, someone is responsible for what happened and I can't say who that is, but I know it's not me. Actually it is, dude. You were the one holding the gun. Okay. So wake up, dude. You know, you you sound like Jeffrey Epstein, which is where this story is going. Baldwin sat down with Stephanopoulos. I think there's some type of 60-minute interview that ABC is kind of doing in their synergistic coverage. So the ABC News Network will interview somebody, and then they'll basically kick it out to all of their media outlets and their written outlets. And... Baldwin says, I don't know what happened on that set. I don't know how that bullet arrived in the gun. I don't know. But I'm all for doing anything that will take us to a place where this is less likely to happen again. Well, I think the first thing is don't take the gun from the assistant director. The prop guy or the weapons guy who hopefully you left enough money in the budget for, that was his job to hand you the gun, not the assistant director. So... The assistant director should probably get a charge for involuntary manslaughter or another charge. You know, I don't know what the co-conspirating for a murder is, but that assistant director knew he was violating his union's rules. Just like the camera or the cinematographer, um, the woman, her name was Helena, Helena. Helena Hutchins, just like when Helena Hutchins camera people walked off of that set because it was unsafe, Helena should have walked too. And if Helena would have walked, she would have never been behind that camera. And the fact that she didn't walk with her, her union members speaks a lot to, you know, her personality and who she is. Because when my cinematographer and when my camera guy or my camera person, my camera woman are both on the same page, then I agree with them. That's what you can do. And sometimes when they disagree, you still have to find a consensus. So there's another incident where the system broke down and Helena... The cinematographer should have never been behind that camera. So as we continue through this article, hmm, uh, uh, okay. The cast and crew of Rust were working against the clock. Baldwin said the budget, approximately $7 million, accounted for just 21 days of filming at the famed Bonanza Ranch in Santa Fe, New Mexico. Okay, like I said... You know, when you work with people from L.A., they need three to four times the resources to do what a Chicago, a New York, or, you know, 
what Moonlight, uh, that film that won the Oscar, or what Moonlight's crew could do with less. So, I mean, you're already working with inflated egos, and the money isn't going on the screen. Again, normal film budgets are broken between above-the-line personnel, which are actors, producers, directors, and then below-the-line personnel. And most often than not, the above-the-line person make the majority of the budget up, and the the below-the-line people, which are actually the ones working, they're actually the ones putting in hard time, hard labor, and are actually creating the fabric of the movie, they're getting underpaid. And so this is what happened here. And so in the end, they they kind of walked right into this and they encouraged this to happen. So I can't really feel sorry for Alec Baldwin. I can't really feel sorry for the producers of the film. I can't really feel sorry for Helena Hutchins, who should never have been behind that camera. Because their whole crew walked for a reason. And that reason was someone's going to get killed. So the film's producers, as the article continues, were excited to have secured Hutchinson, uh, blah, blah, blah. Baldwin and Hutchins have never worked together. Blah, 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 blah. On the day of the shooting and so basically what was happening is um you know and again this is another thing where when you're setting up a camera you can always fake angles and you can fake angles with like different lenses you know so like a wide angle lens which might be a 10 millimeter 15 millimeter you have to have a wide lens and you can get closer to someone you know and then to to create that close-up but in this case whatever this shot was really what should have happened is they should have chose a telephoto or like a zoom lens you know something above probably 100 to 200 millimeters whatever it was you know but they could have basically faked the angle got back zoomed in to where it made it look like the gun was pointing directly at the camera So, again, this is a technical thing, but while you're shooting a film, you always have to bounce back and forth between how close am I going to get to the reality in the scene that there is danger, and then how are we going to fake this? And the reason why is because, and this comes from David Mamet, I don't know if we have any David Mamet fans listening, but a film is always about what happens next a film is always about what happens next. So it's a series of shots that are assembled together. And oftentimes people think that one shot is going to make or break the movie, but it's not. It really is not. It's about the quality of your story and how the characters feel as they go along the arc of the story to convey this message. But as we've seen in the years, Hollywood lacks stories and messages because they're constantly trying to subjugate the creators, the writers, the directors, the cinematographers, the producers to bad scripts and bad movies so that they can hold up a system that really is lost. So as the article continues... 
During rehearsal, Baldwin said the film's first assistant director, David Halls, handed him a revolver. Baldwin recalled Halls telling him, this is a cold gun, industry jargon for a weapon that is either literally empty or loaded with non-firing dummy rounds. Now what happened there and why he had made that statement and what the realities were, I have again, this is Baldwin talking. So Baldwin gets handed the gun from the assistant director, which should never happen. And it means that the producers in Baldwin were fine with breaking all protocol that keeps crew safe on a set. That keeps the crew, the actors, the cast safe on a set. That's what all this protocol is for. You know, but oftentimes Hollywood tends to promote people that don't quite understand why they need all these protocols. As a film director, I love the protocols because it means I get to focus solely on the creative action. You know, and some of the protocols that were put on some of my early films were like, don't let Josh look at his phone. So I literally would hand my phone off to the producers at the beginning of the day, and then I wouldn't see my phone till the end so that I was always focused on the shot list and everything that was happening. And that's a very small example of protocol. Another one was like, I was never really allowed to get to set by myself. You know, just because if I was the one, you know, leading the ship's charge, you know, I had to be driven to set and I had to be driven back because, you know, I often wanted to get there before everyone else, you know, just so I could see how the crew was feeling. Um, and, you know, depending on the type of film you're on, you know, you really need the crew. You really need everybody to be together. Um, and so it's very obvious on this set that everything was falling apart. And again, $7 million for a 21-day movie, that is not that hard to achieve. They're acting like it's hard. It's not, people. It's not. The problem was, and you can look at their budget, because there's probably a shooting budget, there's probably a pre-budget, and the budget holds all the truths of what happened, where you overspent, where you underspent, where you didn't spend. And all of that comes out in the wash of the process of making the movie. You learn where to put your money so that you don't ever run out of the war chest that you need to produce a movie. I was very lucky. I had two Chicago-based producers, PJ Fishwick, Claire Conley, as well as the cinematographer that I was working with, Dan Fisher. He was also interested in the budget. And, and that's very rare for a cinematographer to care like that. And so I was very lucky to have those people in place. And they were not good at their job. They're great at their job. They're great at their job. Whereas, you know, most people in L.A. or New York, they probably didn't have to work for their job. They were a producer in name because they had the money, but they've never been on a set to actually, you know, kind of be a line producer to kind of enforce the budget lines and see how they can be shifted throughout the process of production. And so most of these people, you know, they shouldn't have their jobs, basically, because they haven't had to work or be educated on what a real producer actually does. So I can't speak to the producers of this movie. I can only speak 
to the producers that I've worked with. And I'm really thankful to have worked with great producers for my feature narrative films. You know, but when you look at this story, if you've made movies, you know this was just a pile of shit waiting for bad stuff to happen. And it's one of the reasons why, you know, Chicago and New York people make fun of Los Angeles people who don't know how to do their job because they get people killed. So as this article progresses, Lisa Torico, a lawyer for someone, has since said that checking the weapons was not uh, his responsibility, which would have been Baldwin, and that expecting an assistant director to check a firearm is like telling the assistant director to check the camera angle or telling the assistant director to check sound or lighting, meaning it just doesn't happen. So there's all this evidence that the crew mutiny had happened, everybody had left, and basically the producers and anyone who was basically above the line getting paid more money than they probably should have been for their work were at fault, and they were trying to continue the production of the movie with whatever crew would follow them. And at that point... You don't follow those people. Integrity is one of those hard things to understand, and there was none of that here. Taraco uh, would also not confirm if Halls, Halls was the assistant director, was the person who handed Baldwin the gun, I believe. Gun in hand, Baldwin said, he and Hutchins began blocking out the scene. She was directing every move, which again, you know, he said everything is a... Everything is at her direction, which again speaks to the quality of directors in Los Angeles, which we won't talk about. Most of the directors in L.A. can't direct their way out of a wet paper bag. So you should really only trust a director if they've actually edited a film. That's kind of a general rule. Um, and then, you know, directors that just direct are never as good as directors that are directors and writers or director, writers and editors which is more of a Korean or an Asian tradition, just because, you know, directors in Asia, specifically this director, uh, writer, editor tradition, it, it's very strong in, in Korea. And I think it's a, a really good place to be if you're working with people. And then there are also the rare directors who are directors, graphic persons, and editors. And those people are amazing because most of the time they can be their own VFX supervisors. Um, they, I mean, you know, they usually bring someone else in, but at the same time they can think fast. So, so what this tells me is the director probably wasn't any good either. Sorry, Joel. This was a marking rehearsal. Hold the gun lower. Go to your right. Okay, right there. All right. Do that. Now show it a little bit over here. She's getting the gun into position. She's guiding me. This, this is all through Alec Baldwin's words. She's guiding me through how she wants me to hold the gun for this angle. I'm holding the gun where she told me to hold it, which ended up being aimed right below her armpit. What happens next remains a mystery. It's the subject of intense public scrutiny and investigation fronted by the Santa Fe. To get the shot, Baldwin said he needed to cock the gun. He cocked the gun. The trigger wasn't pulled. Baldwin said he didn't pull the trigger. I cocked the gun. I go, can you see that? And basically what happens is, and then Baldwin said, I let go of the hammer of the gun, and the gun goes off. I let go of the hammer of the gun. The gun goes off. 
which if you know anything about Shakespeare acting, that's very blatant repetition of, of the same ending line twice. Normally in Shakespeare, it's a dramatic repetition. So, okay, dude, you're kind of performing for Stephanopoulos. So George Stephanopoulos says, so you never pulled the trigger. No, 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 no. I would never point a gun at anyone and pull a trigger at them. Actually, Alec, you did. You pointed the gun, you pulled the hammer back and you know, I don't know how much proper training you had on the Colt 45, but you pull the hammer back on those old guns, then you pull the trigger. And I don't know guns very well, but you know, after you've blocked the shot, there's no point to just execute the whole thing, dude. You know, it's not like you're going to do one take, bro. You're going to do multiple takes until you get it. So, you know. And how does this article end? It's her time. Baldwin had his finger. Oh, Toroko Hall's corroborated Ball's account on Thursday saying Hall's told her from day one that he was watching from three or four feet away and the entire time Baldwin had his finger outside the trigger guard parallel to the gun that Alec did not pull that trigger. Okay, after cocking and releasing the gun's hammer, Baldwin recalled that, first of all, everyone is horrified, they're shocked, it's loud. Uh, and then, not dawn on me until 45 minutes to an hour later, Baldwin said accidental discharges of blanks were a dummy round on film set. In fact, crew members might have since said that there had already been at least one accidental discharge on the rust set just days before the fatal incident. So, again... Baldwin doesn't know that there are live rounds on the Rust set. So when Baldwin's guns discharged, okay. So, you know, this is a this is a very hor horrific thing to happen. And as you continue through the article, it just kind of says how you know the crew members described. The fatal incident as a symptom of a production in disarray, like I was saying before, leveling allegations in the press and in the civil, so an unsafe set. So basically, these producers had a runaway production from L.A. They went and they got the tax break in New York. They took the $7 million. They probably ingested at least four of it, spent $3 million on the crew. Knowing what I know now, they probably took $5 million for the above-the-line budget, and they left $2 million for the crew budget because, you know, it says unsafe work condition, long hours, which means they were abusing people because they weren't making their days, which points back to Joel Souza not being a very good director because you can't overwork your crew, bro. And if you do, that means, like, you are unprepared. You got that, Joel? You are unprepared. You didn't do your homework for that day. Why do the Cohen brothers, and now I'm speaking to some of the greats right now, why do the Cohen brothers, when you work with them, they always are on time, on budget, for the most part. They make their days. Woody Allen, same thing. So I guess they don't make directors like they used to. So again... Underqualified hires, insufficient housing accommodation. Just hours before shooting, several crew members walked off the set in protest. I mean, 12 to 13 hour work days. Kind of, but like, not really. 
So what people don't understand is sometimes directors can abuse the crew. This happened on Public Enemy, a Michael Mann film in Chicago. For anybody who worked on that film, don't ask me how I know, but I know. It happened so bad because Michael Mann would come in and he would ask, oh, hey, you know what? That, that white is almond. I need that white to be cream. And so he would basically make changes that didn't need to happen. Like cream and off-white. Like I said, one shot doesn't make or break the movie. There's this thing called editing. But also, when you make last-minute changes with the crew, it means you're not ready. It means you're not prepared. And your movie's going to go over budget. The only thing that stopped Michael Mann from abusing that crew was Johnny Depp. Johnny Depp a couple times had to protest and say he wasn't coming out to work because of how Michael Mann was treating the crew. The other thing is, if you're a director and you think this is a, I don't know, an illustration of your great talent to not be prepared when you show up on a set and there's, I don't know, 70 to $50 million on the line and you got to, you know, make your days so that you can finish on time. Well, it just, you're going to go over budget. And what people don't realize is crews will start to steal from you. Let me say that again. When you abuse the crews and you can't stick to these union obligations and these very real things, you can have an eight to 10 hour day and you can make your day if you're prepared. And you usually make your day at the beginning of the day. And you know you're not going to make your day halfway through the day. And so by being able to listen and have perspective, you know, you can make a movie come in on budget. But that's not what was going on on the set of Rust. So there was crew abuse. And so, again, going back to this, producers and directors, when you abuse your crew, your crew will start to steal from you. As they should. If you're going to be a dick, then guess what? Your APOC is going to go take the credit card and buy all of the groceries for their, them and their roommates at Whole Foods. Your APOC is going to buy, you know, extra, you know, uh, office supplies and funnel them to the four student filmmaking interns because they believe in them versus the director and the producers. So this is a reason why you should be nice to your crew. So moving forward, this is kind of what we see here. And this is just a bloody mess. Here's one. Baldwin said that the day before, some other crew members quit. Camera assistant. A camera assistant basically said there were issues with the accommodations and some other things. And, you know, so it, they, they were putting a lot of pressure on their crew, which they shouldn't have done. And it basically, look at the budget and you'll see what not to do. Now we have this murder. And this is what it is. I mean, if a garbage truck driver is driving a garbage truck and he backs over someone while, I don't know, he's like putting his garbage truck in position to basically 
pick up some trash cans, guess what? That garbage truck driver better hope he only hurt that person because he's getting in trouble. You see? He's getting in trouble. If he kills that person, there will be charges. There will be charges. Who knows how it's going to work out. So, you know, this made me dig a little deeper. And so I had to know, like, should Alec Baldwin be put in jail for murder or human slaughter or manslaughter or woman slaughter? I'm not quite sure. So I started to, to, to dig a little bit. And as I started to dig, I found that you're going to have to go to Duck, Duck, Go for this one because these stories are buried, if not scrubbed, from Google. But go to Duck, Duck, Go and search out Jeffrey Epstein and Alec Baldwin. And you will find different articles, some of which leads to court documents that were presented of Jeffrey Epstein's little black book where you find Alec Baldwin's name. This will be in the show notes. So please look at the show notes and I hope they don't change the link. But there is some website that is featuring a lot of different of of things they used in evidence in the Epstein case. But in this article, it says the Baldwins, and this article is from December 9th, 2021, and it's on a website called truth11.com. It looks more like a blog, but hey, I'll take any evidence how I can get it at this point because this person was just following the trial. The Baldwins disappeared from public life, and again, his wife is 37 and he is 63. So this should give us a little bit of a insight into a pedophilia's mind. If you take 20 years off of Alec Baldwin, he would be 43. If you take 20 years off of his wife, she would be 17. Okay? So I just had to scratch the surface a little more because I just wanted to know. So go to DuckDuckGo is the search engine and search out Alec Baldwin and Jeffrey Epstein. So basically this article talks about Alec Baldwin uh, or the Baldwins removing their social profiles shortly after evidence emerged in the trial of Galena Maxwell that he was in Jeffrey Epstein's black book. The piece of evidence in question is called Government Exhibit 52. It was annotated copy of Epstein's little black book and a directory containing a long list of names, numbers, and addresses for Epstein's many friends, associates, and acquaintances. In addition to Baldwin, contact information for various other celebrity figures can be found. Ralph Fiennes, David Blaines, Ivanka and Ivana Trump, Jimmy Buffett, Chris Evans, Dustin Hoffman, Mick Jagger, Michael Jackson, Chris Tucker, and many influential business names and political leaders, including David Koch, Mike Bloomberg, Peter Cohen, Flavio Briatore, 
Don't know who that is. Steve Forbes. Rupert Murdoch. We all knew about Rupert. Come on. Ronald Perlman, the businessman, not the actor. Peter Soros, the nephew of George Soros. And Robert Trump, the brother of Donald Trump. In addition, and again, these were some of the names that I believe were not redacted. Because I think there's a lot more people who were in public service and still are in public service that are in that book. And it's really true. Now we can see that people fail their way to the top. So now we know that some of the top talent in politics, in business, uh, and in Hollywood failed their way to their top because they could be blackmailed. So some of the best talents we haven't even seen yet. They're yet to be discovered. So the names of former leaders that were in Jeffrey's Black Book were Donald Trump, Democratic Senator Ted Kennedy, former Prime Minister of the United Kingdom Tony Blair, Prince Michael of Yugoslavia, which I think that's interesting because Yugoslavia is not a country anymore, and entries for the Duchess and Duke of York. So, I kind of really don't care about Alec Baldwin's story. Alec Baldwin doesn't like me, and I don't like him. He doesn't know about me, and I don't know him. But this is all real evidence. And if you analyze the story from the perspective of someone who's made films, who's worked within the union systems... And actually someone who's been to festivals where I kind of discovered this was happening. When I premiered my first feature film at the Edinburgh Film Festival in the United Kingdom, I watched as the current head of, I think he was for IFC, IFC, I think that's what it was. It was a distributor. And the big thing was a digital distribution deal on streaming portal you know, on like streaming channels, but they were streaming for cable channels. So the streaming wars hadn't begun yet. And this guy that worked at IFC, he basically traded, no, 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 the filmmaker actually who got distribution from the guy at IFC, he was from a crime family in Edinburgh. And so his, his family, he, like he was raised in the private sector, meaning he went to boarding school and all that. And in the summer he would come back and like work in the brothels and other things in the crime family. But he told us other filmmakers when he came he, to the closing night party, he said, watch how it's done. And I'm like, what, what do you mean? And he was a really nice guy. I'm not going to name his name. And so, and you know, for him, the movie that he had made it there with, he had never been on a film set before. His first film set was the one he walked on to. So again, how privilege buys you access to a place where, you know, some people have worked, I don't know, in my case, 15 years to learn how to direct a movie, to learn how to make a movie, to learn how to tell a story that actually matters to the world and, and audiences. And so he brought some women from the brothel and he basically pawned them off to the IFC guy, and I believe the Magnolia Pictures guy. And I didn't think anything of it at the time, because I was naive. I was like, oh man, it doesn't work this way. Well, guess what? He's the one who actually 
got distribution for his movie. And then, you know, I would watch the IFC guy kind of fail his way as a film executive to the top. And then even worse, whenever Harvey was doing his things, you didn't even have to be in his circle to know what he was up to. I never met Harvey. In, like, in my mind, I was never even close to him at any borders. But the stories you heard, the level of abuse... We all heard him. We all knew. And it was very tragic when, you know, one of my first short films got into the Tribeca Film Festival. And when I went to the Tribeca Film Festival, everyone kind of said, it's a weird festival. Uh, you know, it's just weird. It's got some weird things going on with it. And I never thought about it. But as I look back, a lot of the parties were at the Tribeca Grand, which, you know, the Tribeca Grand is where... You know, Harvey invited this one woman. I will put that link to her YouTube video in the show notes as well, as you kind of see Harvey's behavior and in, in how he was a predator and how he was hunting people to rape them and using the movie business to do that. So it was all very, very sad. Um... And then years after, I think I had a short film in Tribeca in 2005, eventually Tribeca partnered with the Weinstein Company to kind of be the official offloading ground because basically the distribution in film has always been crappy because the people at the top don't really understand how it works. So there's an Atlantic article, I'll try to find it and put it in the show notes, that talks about the beginning of the streaming wars. And Netflix actually came to the studios to work with them. And the studios were so high on power that they couldn't understand what Netflix was doing. And this really began the streaming wars. And then Netflix basically took over, and now here we are. But they didn't have vision to see that. And what's even worse is that, you know, to not have vision when everybody else knew in the world or in the United States. When I was a college kid, Netflix and DVDs and then Netflix from DVDs to Netflix to streaming, everybody knew that was the future. Everybody. But sometimes people in power don't see the obvious. So this is just one of those strange things. And, you know, we can't say that it's not obvious because another story that really talks about the underbelly of Hollywood, which then reaches into New York and the business world and the mafias and the movie industry is the Heidi Fly story. And in the Heidi Fly story, you see a high end call girl ascend to a madam to the point where you see that the studios are using prostitutes and using all kinds of sex workers to basically, you know, kind of help f feed or basically satiate their actors to the point where Heidi Fleiss, you know, actually has corrupt cops. Heidi Fleiss has corrupt detectives that she's working with. And the story goes on and on. I'm actually 
trying to find this one script that's been written about the Heidi Fleiss story. And, and there was an individual who I met who, as it was all happening, he was next to Heidi Fleiss writing a screenplay and then he could never pull it off. And I could see why that would be a very dangerous screenplay to write or to even make into a movie. So I think there were early evidences of that. And, you know, now with Alec Baldwin shooting a woman, I would almost think that maybe he was even set up, you know, because everything goes to crap. You know, he's probably doing abusive stuff there, especially if, you know, he's in Jeffrey Epstein's black book and his wife is, I don't know, almost 30 years younger than him. I mean, that's got pedophilia written all over it, doesn't it? And so I'm not judging. I'm just saying Alec Baldwin needs to go to jail. And this is just one of his crimes. And through this Epstein evidence, we see more of his crimes. And so, you know, the American honeypot known as Jeffrey Epstein is gone, but who knows where it will go after that. And if you even look at how Hollywood operates, you got to wonder if there's not, you know, many honeypots out there. So I think Alec Baldwin should go to jail. I think the assistant director is probably going to face charges. I think the producers of the movie should face charges. And we need to use this example to take the budget of a movie and put it where it needs to go. If you're abusing the crew, then all of this stuff didn't happen to you. You created this shitstorm. So now you're going to have to deal with it. This has been a very special episode of the American Filmmaker Podcast, and I hope you enjoyed it. We're going to have more interviews coming. If you like what you heard, please subscribe. Please rate the podcast. And please sign up for monthly subscriptions so we can tell more stories from the front lines of humanity. The American Filmmaker Podcast as a name was a joke. And the reason why is because if you look at the graphic of the American Filmmaker Podcast, it's Charlie Chaplin, who was born to basically a single mother, I think, who was an extra in the Hollywood studio, who Charlie Chaplin then rose to fame, and in the end, he died with nothing in a pauper's grave. And his, what should be a copyrightable symbol, is now in the public domain. And someone like me gets to use it to make fun of a system that exploits humanity while at the same time tries to entertain them. If there is a message on the American Filmmaker podcast, it's really simple. You don't need to exploit people to tell the story of humanity through cinema. Thank you for listening to the American Filmmaker podcast. We will catch up with you next time.